so I want to ask you a question this morning, and that is very simply, who is it that you can trust? Uh, it has been said that we have a crisis of trust in our nation right now. And it's interesting that institutions have lost trust with us. Individuals have lost trust with us. We wrestle with what information that we can consider as trustworthy. You guys probably grew up in a home like me that there were things that you were taught. I've already shared with you that I was told that that little juice from a poinsettia is poisonous. It doesn't kill you. Um, but uh, how about the, the fact that if you take off your hat, um, that all of the heat will come out of your, you know, guys know that that's a little bit of a myth, um, or the myth that um, turkey is the reason why you fall asleep on Thanksgiving. That's called having a food coma, actually. Uh, and I read an article this week that said that uh, actually chicken and and beef has as much of that chemical that puts us to sleep as uh, the the one that's in turkey. So you kind of scratch your head. Well, who is it? that I can trust. Is that really true? Is this accurate? And we've lived our lives with, with statements and things that we've kind of heard and we've taken for fact and we've wrestled like, is this really true? Or who can we trust? What is it? Um, that you, guys, you guys remember the, the statement that you can't go swimming uh, until two hours after you've eaten? Anybody's taught that before? Um, it's a lie. It's not true at all. But uh, uh, it was based on a myth, right, that we'd heard. So we, we wrestle right now. I think it's, it's I'm comfortable with saying that this question of who can you trust is one that we ask often. I think levels of trust in this country and in our institutions and in our politics and one another are in precipitous decline. We, we wrestle with, with who is it that we can trust. I think we struggle with trusting institutions and society's kind of based on the ability to trust an institution. When you sit at a restaurant and you order something, you anticipate and expect that you're going to get what you ordered and that they took good care of it. Did you guys remember about a year ago it came out that the uh, tuna fish sandwich at Subway didn't include tuna fish? You guys remember hearing this? Um, so if you were um, one of those that loved tuna fish, somebody had the time and did some research, a DNA test on what they gave you at, at Subway and found out the tuna fish sandwich happened to not contain any tuna fish. I, I think there's stories like that that we hear almost every day of who, who is it that we can trust. And I'd extend it to institutions, some institutions that we grew up with that represented places of development, caring for kids. Uh, even the church, if we're honest, has come under attack or there's reasons why we stand back and we say, can I trust that institution? I think where there's really today, if we're honest, a crisis of leadership, uh, whether it's who we, where we stand politically and watching leaders who've gone before us or whether it's institutions, again, even in the church, that there's an ability to stand back and look at even the history of Hope Church at times and to be able to say, can we trust the leadership that is above us, pastors, leaders, individuals in front of us? I think, I think if, we're, if we're honest, we struggle with trusting one another. I uh, was with a friend last week and he shared this story. This is, this is embarrassing. He confessed this. I think it was almost like he wanted me to absolve him of his, his guilt. That he, he said when he was in high school, he and a good friend decided that they were going to get their names tattooed on the back, their backs, like their full name like you would on a jersey, right? Uh, and so they went into a tattoo parlor. They sat down and, and the one guy sat down. He 
he's like 18, gets, gets the full tattoo. And then afterwards, my friend told me he just decided he didn't want a tattoo anymore. Uh, and so uh, he didn't get one at all. Uh, and um, I don't think they're friends anymore. That's just basically what I say, right? Like, like so you, you trust people. There have been people in your life that have let you down. In fact, this very interesting study was done by the University of Chicago, a general social survey that, um, that said that interpersonal trust, how we trust one another, is in catastrophic decline. In 2014, according to their research, only 30.3% of Americans agreed that most people can be trusted. That's the lowest number the survey had recorded since the early 70s. And and I think, uh, you know, here this is almost 10 years old, that study, eight years old. And you, you, you know, if I ask you, do you think people trust each other more today than they did a decade ago? And I think we'd say no. So, so when we meet new people, when we interact with new people, when we try to build new relationships, when we, uh, when we wrestle with, with this question of who is it that we can trust, I think that for many of us, we leave ourselves with a giant question mark at the end of this, I, I would like to extend as well that as I wrestled with this passage of scripture that we're going to study together today, I think that there's times when I wrestle with trusting myself. Uh, there's times when I wrestle with the times that I, my actions or decisions that I've made that have disappointed me or my capacity to be able to manage and handle the circumstances of life. I thought this was funny. My wife shared this with me this last week that um, some of you may have seen this, but they said this, um, it's kind of joking, but it says 10 years from now, there's going to be a standardized test with a math problem that says, if Matt was exposed to COVID on Tuesday and had no symptoms four days later, and he got it from Susie, who caught it at a party three days before Matt and tested positive five days later, how likely is it Matt's little brother going to is going to test positive on an antigen test if he tests two days after Matt tests positive? Uh, like, like some of the stuff that's happening around us, you're asking us to do math and figure out things that we don't know anything about, Right? And so we, we look at our lives and we wrestle with, like I at times stand back and say, if I'm the one who's supposed to sort through these facts and details and what can I trust, sometimes we just find ourselves, I don't know who to trust. And this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to celebrate with you that the God that I worship is completely and entirely trustworthy. There's a proverb that we quote often, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that says, trust in yourself with all of your heart and try to figure everything out and everything will... Is that what the text says? Are you guys awake? The text says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding and all of your ways acknowledge him. And what will he do? He will direct your paths. This morning, as we study God's word together, as we head back into our series we call The Prodigal Church, the Apostle Paul is going to emphasize the fact that the God that we worship, the, the Lord Jesus Christ's uh, life showed us that he is 100% reliable and trust, trustworthy. He, we recognize that you and I live in an inconsistent world. But I celebrate this morning that the God that I worship is constantly trustworthy. 
There's never a time when he has not done what he says that he's going to do. We can trust him with 100% no doubt. His resurrection was very real. We're going to see evidence of that today. His, his gift to us of the promise of life is one that's not based upon our ability to earn it, but it's based upon his provision and blessing for us. So some 20 years before the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle, he's going to describe to us what, what, it, means, um, what, it, so what it means to have had a resurrected father, one that we celebrate, one that we understand this simple first point this morning, and that is this. Christ always did exactly what he said that he was going to do. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to pick up in verse 1. As the Apostle Paul moves beyond orderly worship, which we studied the last several weeks, and now he's going to talk with us about what it means to have faith and hope and an understanding of our own resurrection in the light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to give us a lesson on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I mentioned this in my prayer, but we, today I want to celebrate with you that I was a part of a funeral yesterday that as I watched this funeral for Alfreda Schaefer that I found myself afterwards just saying she was prepared for her graduation day. That she'd lived her life in such a way that she uh, was ready to, in fact, they tell the story as a family that she was literally worshiping together with her family when she, bre when she breathed her last breath. And in that process, we, we anticipate and celebrate absent from the body, present with the Lord. She had a living hope. And we celebrate that goodness. And here the Apostle Paul is going to teach us what it means to anticipate our own resurrection because of the faithful promises of the one who raised from the dead. Verse 1 of 15, chapter 15. He said this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preached to you when you received, which you received, in which you now stand. Um, this, this first verse, it's important for us to remember. He's speaking to people who are professing believers in the city of Corinth. And as he shares this, he's reminding them, this is the good news. This is the message of hope. This is our living hope, one that I had the privilege of sharing with you, and one that you received in such a way that today you stand in it. And I think we think of that term stand, sometimes we talk about falling in war or in battle. And I think the opposite of that is what he's describing here. You're standing in Life, you're standing in the opportunity that came to you through the work of the gospel. So he says, here you stand in it. And I'll just remind you of some of the passages that talk about this. In Ephesians chapter 6, 1, it talks about putting on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the schemes of the evil one or the deceiver. I think of the beautiful words that were written earlier in 1 Corinthians in this book that we're studying that said, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. But here's, here's the problem. The, the problem was that the, these people that were in Corinth were exposed to the message of the gospel, 
But when it came to applying the truth of the gospel, there were some things for them that they were maybe asking questions. Theologians think they may have been questioning the literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was that that important? They were asking these questions about the resurrection of Jesus. And, and as they went through that, later on, the Apostle Paul is going to say, if we don't have the resurrection, we got nothing. <laughs> When it comes to being Christ followers, if we don't have Easter and we just have the, um, the intensity of Good Friday, then we do not have a living Savior, right? And so he warns them, he challenges them as they, he talks about them standing in it. He warns them that there's a way to do this, to misunderstand and not apply this truth is it puts at risk our ability to understand and produce fruit in our life in the relationship that we have with Christ. It says this in verse two, and by which you are being saved. He's affirming them. He's encouraging them. But then he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That word in vain here, if we pack, pull it apart, it means without purpose, without effect, and without change. And at the first question, you say, well, is he saying that you can lose your salvation? I don't believe that that's what he's saying here. I actually think what he's saying here is, if you understand the gospel, this is going to radically change your life. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, he's saying, if the gospel isn't the gospel, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then this is all a waste of time. It's in vain. It's useless. But, but what's beautiful about this passage is he says, you have the ability to hold fast to it. Uh, I, I, I like to, to ski. I shared that last week. I like to water ski. How many of you have water skied before? This will help me. So a few of you have. So, so if you have water skied before, um, even if you haven't, I'll try to help you if you haven't. There is a moment in the water skiing process where you are convinced you are going to die. All right? and, and part of the reason is that you're going to drink more, more water is going to go in your mouth than you think that you can handle. And as you, especially, I, I love the privilege of trying to teach people to ski. It's a lot of fun. Um, but, but there's this, this moment where you try to get the skis in the right place and the rope in the right place. But what you're saying to them is you are going to have to hold on to this tow rope even when it feels like you're going to die. And if you do, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a place when you, um, the, the physics change and you find yourself above the water and then it's a ton of fun up there. But the process, everything inside of your mind says, let go, let go, let go. Let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. And, and here, what the Apostle Paul is saying to us in this, this church in Corinth is he's saying, as a believer, you need to hold firm. You need to remember and hold tight to what you're experiencing in the, in the gospel. You need to hold tight to what he has communicated. He's a promise-keeping God. He is faithful. He knows your needs more than what you do. And he's going to give us an argument biblically for why we can trust him. And what's incredible about it is his reason we can trust him is because literally God has the keys of victory over death that he has the capability of overcoming death. And we see this really clearly outlined in the text. So, so he challenges them not to have a futile faith, but to have one that radically changes their lives. In verse three he says, for I delivered to you 
as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. I think it's important for us to understand that for some people, when they receive this message of the gospel, that they are living as if it wasn't the most important thing about them, or they're living as if they still need to earn their salvation somehow. Uh, you may have heard this illustration before. It's meaningful to me, uh, but I've read books about and stories of people who are in places in our world, even today, where they still work with elephants and that they use elephants as implements to help lift and build and do construction in some places in India and other places around the world. They still do some of this. And the story is told that there is a time period if you are raising a young elephant where obviously you don't want a, an elephant to be running around uh, in your village or in your community. And so they have to control the elephant. So that what they'll do is they will take a rope and they will stake the elephant's leg uh, to the ground. So, so every time that elephant pulls when it's young, it is going to be attached to something that says, I can't go anywhere. The amazing thing of what, what they say happens as that elephant goes from 200 to 300 to thousands of pounds, as it builds its strength and it's strong enough to literally lift the weight of a car, that that elephant still only needs a small rope tied around its leg because mentally it believes that it is still shackled, that it cannot move on beyond what it's experiencing. It doesn't have the strength that is necessary to, when it, it, it really is a mental shackle, right? And I want to remind you that the church in Corinth, the reason why Paul is taking time in this letter is he's saying to them, somehow you're missing the most essential thing about your faith. And that is we anticipate our resurrection because the God we worship has victory. He has the keys over death. And so when we celebrate the gospel and when he challenges them that, that this is of first importance, that it is the message that he received. Just, just think about who received that message. That this was the Apostle Paul, the man who was in an early stage in his life fighting hard religiously to earn his way into the presence of God. And then over time, he turned into a man who God um, who was a persecuting God, who literally at the time that he was confronted by God on, the, on, the, uh, on this beautiful encounter with God, God said to him, Saul, Saul, why is it that you are persecuting me? And so here he was zealously persecuting individuals that were embracing the gospel. He was a man who was religious. He was a man who was zealous. And then ultimately, he'd realized that he was fighting on the other team, that he was persecuting the very message of the living hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That cannot feel good. <laughs> that, that could not have been something that as he reflected on his life, that he stood back and was proud of that chapter in his history and that he, he, he would no doubt as a believer and a lover, he, can you imagine the feeling that he had towards Stephen, that martyr that he was watching be persecuted? This is a brother of his that he would understand later through the truth of the gospel, right? So he's got this level of guilt that he carries into it, but then he's able to articulate in such a beautiful way that, that I received this message from the Lord 20 some years 
after Jesus walked the earth. The apostle Paul's a little bit jealous about those who got to receive it firsthand. Um, and I can relate to that. Can you imagine how amazing it would have been to have been one of those original disciples that, that Jesus said, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But instead, we'll see as these verses unpack that the Apostle Paul received supernaturally truth from the Lord, the inspired truth that God would give him. And what it says in the text clearly is he received it and he shared it with them, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And we're going to see this multiple times in the text, in accordance with the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures and their authority really matters. And here, what we see in the text is it says, and he was buried. Well, I, I want to remind you that there were many witnesses to the death of Jesus Christ. I think at first and foremost we, foremost, we know that you don't bury dead people. That's a good thing, right? And, and here, Jesus was put to death and he was buried. There were many earthly eyewitnesses. There were the soldiers that saw him. There were the people who, who watched him be sacrificed on that cross in such a public way. There was the Roman centurion that convinced Caesar um, that, that he was dead. There were those who poked Jesus, pierced him with a spear, and immediately the blood and water came out. His body was finished for that time. There was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was John, Jesus's friends. There was Joseph's, Joseph of Arimathea, who his accomplice uh, Nicodemus would help to gather the body of Jesus and put him into a tomb. We know that Pilate accepted the testimony of the centurion and there were large crowds. There were so many people that witnessed the death of Jesus as a historical event. You know what I love about the crucifixion is that in that fateful moment when Jesus did exactly what he told the disciples that he was going to do in the upper room, is that even creation and the creator noticed the death of Jesus. The, the history tells us that there was a great earthquake that happened. There was a mystery that surrounded this sun-stopping shining for that moment in history. And, and we also know that there was a temple that separated the Holy of Holies that was torn from top to bottom. Creation and the creator recognized this work that Jesus had done and that he had died you know, he was died, he was buried. But the text goes on to say in chapter um, 15, verse 4, the second portion of it, it says this, and I celebrate this, I rejoice this, in this this morning, that he was raised. I, I celebrate that, the tense that this was written in is one that it means that it's ongoing. He's still alive. He has been raised. And on the third day, in accordance with the promises of Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's, that's Peter, another guy who had things in his ledger that he would wish to have regret. Can you imagine the intimacy of the moment of the man who had denied Christ three times and that now Jesus is going to reveal himself to him? And then it says that in the text that he re revealed himself to the 12. This is very fascinating to me. I think that, that we wrestle with when it says 12, does that mean that at this point Judas has already committed suicide? Uh, missing out on the front row seat that he had of the work of Christ? Had Matthias already been chosen to be able to fill that role that was, we, we don't know all of the intimacies of this recognition, but what we do know is that, is that Jesus was visible. He'd resurrected physically from the grave and he appeared to, to 
so many people. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom at the time that Paul wrote this some 20 years later were still living. And then he says, though some had fallen asleep. I think it's incredible to, to imagine this description of what had happened in many of their lifetimes. It says that he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. So there were, were eyewitnesses. The creation witnessed the resurrection of Jesus as well. Another earthquake, another um, at his ascension. There's other recognitions of Jesus returning to the earth. It's interesting to me that Jesus really rose from the grave and it did not go unnoticed. Cephas, the 12, 500 brothers, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who'd be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So, so this, though, is not the only evidence that we have. I think the one that really strikes me, it was fun, my brother joined us for worship in the first service and he's visiting from Columbus, he and his family. We had a great time together. But I, I want you to imagine that, um, that, that he made a claim about something that was so significant that after he died, that I took it so seriously that I would be willing to die for his claim or his belief. Or, uh, that's a stretch, to be honest. If he, if he was just claiming something and if he's dead, that's one thing. But, but the people who Jesus taught, those who encircled him in this time period in history, many of them historically are going to go on, believe what he said so intimately that they're going to be willing to die because they believe that this is true. You don't die for a lie. You don't die for something that you're not convinced of. But here, even the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ historically would go to their deaths because of the fact that they believed the, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. said this earlier, but that the words and actions of Jesus were always the same. Jesus did what he said he was going to do. He called his shot in the upper room. He followed through with exactly what he was going to do. And for some of us, we still ask the question, so what? Why does this matter? And I think it's helpful. Jaroslav Pelikan puts it this way. He says, if Jesus did not defeat death, every claim he ever made is proven false. If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. I think that's profound. I think um, Gresham, J. Gresham Macon put it this way. He says, Christ died, that is history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolute indissolvable union, there is no Christianity. I think it's important for us to recognize Easter really matters to us. That, that it allows us to lead to the second point. And uh, good news, there's only two points today, so relax. Um, but the second point this morning is Christ is our living hope. Uh, scripture professes this clearly in other places. And here we see it again that Paul is going to encourage them. And I want to celebrate the fact that even as we see the Apostle Paul being the one who's going to share this truth, I celebrate the fact that past failure does not necessarily guarantee future failure. So we, we look at Paul's life and we recognize that his previous failures did not necessitate the fact that he was going to fail now. In fact, what he says in the text is interesting. He understood his own shortcomings and his own failures. It says this in verse eight. Last of all, as to one untimely born, again, I mentioned earlier, I think he, like, like some of us say, man, I wish I'd been there to experience Jesus firsthand. 
in that natural way 20 some years before. He appeared also to me. And, and we know that this, um, this shows up in the passage of scripture that we often read in 1 Corinthians where the apostle Paul shares at the Lord's table that the Lord Jesus had given this to him and he passes it on again. He says this idea again. He appeared also to me. And then Paul describes himself in a very intimate and personal way. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Uh, elsewhere, the apostle Paul describes himself as the chief of all sinners. And, and I think as we read this, what we don't understand this as is a form of false humility, but this recognition that the apostle Paul knew that he had made mistakes. He had regrets in his life. He regretted other chapters in his history, but praise the Lord, God's grace is sufficient. Praise the Lord, his ability to overcome even the darkest of things in our past, it allows us to say that past failure does not necessitate future failure. He says, for I am the least of the apostles in verse nine. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church. I think uh, if we're going to make this real in our life, there's an important test that I want to challenge you. Will you uh, take a test with me right now? I want you to think about somebody who is despicable to you. I think when I say that, some of us might think of someone in our past that, like in history, like an Adolf Hitler or an, a, a Saddam Hussein, or a, 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 we, we can throw bunches of names. I, I don't want to fill it in the blank for you, but maybe it's a historical person, or maybe in your own life you've had some frenemies that have just seemed to have attacked you and hurt you in your life. They're frustrating to you. Maybe it was a boss or a coworker or a sibling. Sometimes we, so if there was somebody that has been a source of great pain for you or a source of discouragement, or that it is someone who has been antagonistic to your faith or that has done things that have deeply hurt you. Can you picture that person's name? Like, <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sean. Uh, think about them. And, and then I want to ask you, do you believe that God's grace would be sufficient to cover the, the failures of their life. Even if they've caused such pain in your life, could God's grace be sufficient to, if they had sought his forgiveness in their life, would it be enough? And the reason why that question is so essential for us is the apostle Paul had understood he could even save, do you remember what we sang when we sang Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? But, but the point behind it is to understand that if we don't understand God's grace as being sufficient for the worst of sinners, the apostle Paul's point is any sin in our life separates us from God. I, I have done the worst and praise the Lord, his grace is sufficient for us. So if we don't understand that he can save the worst of us, then there's no place for us to completely understand the way that he saves the least of us like you and I, right? And so as he shares this message, there's a part of the Apostle Paul that's exalting and helping us to understand what it means to celebrate the God of the universe. That's anybody. That are the people that you're most discouraged by in your life. Politicians, those who you're discouraged, frustrated, people who make you discouraged or heartbroken or angry. That that I believe that ultimately God's grace is amazing, that God's grace is sufficient. And I think the, the true beauty of that grace that's undeserved is that 
Um, it is a gift from him, entirely undeserved. It says this in verse 10, and some of you have memorized this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I, I, I celebrate that truth. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It is through his grace. It is through his work towards me. That was not empty. It was not in vain. It was not useless. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What I love about that statement is that, that here what he's recognizing is that God did this thing for me. God's grace is good enough for any of us, and we need to be people who act like it's sufficient for us, that it's significant enough, that it was what God was doing in and through me. So his grace um, is with each and every one of us that have received it in our life. And it's not because we've earned it, right? It's not because we deserve it. But, but let's make this a step um, more real for each one of us. Yesterday in this funeral, uh, there was a story that came out of that Elfrida uh, outlived her husband. Her husband was the founding pastor of Grace Church that was in Middleburg Heights, and Grace Church was the church that, that Hope Church, our church, was planted out of. Some of you may remember that uh, Pastor Jonathan, Elfrida's son, was here for my installation, and uh, that was a really special time for me. We loved that family so much. But um, Elfrida learned about a decade ago that her husband had been diagnosed with very serious cancer. It was terminal. And, um, and she, they shared in the, at the funeral yesterday a portion from her very personal diary. And as this was shared, I'll tell you what, what moved inside of me was something that's so important as we're talking about the trustworthiness of God. This is the way that it was read yesterday, and I found it to be so meaningful. So she just found out that the love of her life, a man who she's been married and done ministry with for some 50 years, that, it, that, that she finds out that he's going to die in the near future unless the Lord heals him through his cancer. And she said this, it is not a question of if or not that God is trustworthy. It is a matter of the will. Will I trust him? And brothers and sisters, that's the question for us. I don't believe that there's a question in our minds as to if we can trust God. I think that there's a decision that each and every one of us make where we're having to say, do I trust him when I am in the valley of the shadow of death? Do I fear evil or do I trust him? When my spouse gets a diagnosis that's tra tragic, do I trust him? Will I trust him? And, and so the apostle Paul looks at his own life and he says, I got nothing else to trust in but the Lord. And I think he's saying back to each and every one of us that have professed in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, if you've placed your faith in Christ, he died for you so that you can trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. You're not gonna get there, but he's trustworthy. So the question for each and every one of us is, will I trust him? I think this is our 2022 question whether it's the COVID chaos that's around us, the challenges that we're facing, the circumstances that seem bigger than our circumstances, is it that we are finding ourselves being willing to entrust the burdens and responsibilities of our lives into his care? Or are we individuals that still want to maintain control? She 
allowed herself to take a moment of crisis that did lead to some really hard years ahead where she would say goodbye to her loving husband and, and she beat him, or he beat her, I'm sorry, to, to eternity with the Lord. And, and those were hard years. Her body broke down. There was suffering that took place over those years. But, but what's awesome is that a week ago today in the evening as the sun set, she was worshiping with her family together. And she kept saying, I just want to see Jesus. I don't know your story that well. I don't know if you've placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if the certainty that the Apostle Paul articulates this with some of you. We don't, we don't know everybody who connects with us. We don't know your story. But I'll just remind you, there's nothing that is so significant that keeps you or separates you from the love of Christ. That You're not separated from his love but I will remind you that every single one of us has a day in our future that we have to decide if we are prepared for, like Alfreda was for her homecoming this last week. I've been a part of those funerals, by the way, when people were prepared, and they're just celebrations. They're just, they're just so honoring. They just, they, it's, it's not awake, like you're getting drunk and trying to forget it. No, it's, it's actually just... Praise the Lord, they graduated. They get to be with their king. I look forward to that day someday. But I've also been a part of funerals when people didn't do this, that they hadn't anticipated this day. They chose to do things their own way. They chose to trust in things that were empty. There's, there's nothing that's bigger than God's grace in your life. And what I celebrate is people, some of the people that we love to read, like C.S. Lewis and others, were at one time in their story, very smart, very critically thinking atheists. But over time, by being honest with themselves and then wrestling with the, the claims of the gospel, that at some point in their life, many of them said, I will place my faith and trust in the most important thing about me, and that is the work of Christ on the cross. I believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not believe in the resurrection of your body if you think that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. It does, not it does not work when we do not understand that he is the one who has victory over death. It's not about how great we are. It's not about how bad we are, but it's about our understanding of his grace that's sufficient for us. And I think for some of us, this last sentence is quite intriguing to me. I say this all the time. Maybe it's because I'm a messenger. Maybe it's because God's asked me to be a messenger, but I think about this all the time. The message is so much more important then the messenger, the way Paul puts it in verse 11, is he says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you have believed. That's what I pray for. And, and really what he's saying there is, it doesn't matter who shared the gospel with you. If you are one of those people in Corinth that after the fact heard the gospel through one of the, the elders or leaders in that church in Corinth. He's like, who cares? Uh, you know, for some of us, we get hung up on like who baptized us or where we were baptized. Um, whether you were baptized in our really cool baptismal swimming pool thing that we have here or in Lake Erie with a dead fish bouncing off your leg um, or whether it was in, in Israel and a very meaningful body of water. Like, it doesn't matter where you're baptized. It doesn't matter who baptized you. Uh, but what matters is that you recognize that it was the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us a living hope, right? And, and so, so today, I, I celebrate the fact that there's not a lot of things in the world that I know how to trust 
Um, there are things that we can be diligent about. Our society hasn't broken down. There's people we can trust. I learn today from God's word when he emphasizes according to the scriptures, that really matters. I think if you're wondering where, where there's truth that you can take to the bank, it's, it's where, it's that kind of truth. It's that, that what's God taught us? What's he have to say to us? Paul modeled that for us today. But beyond that, individually, just want to challenge you. How is it that I've responded to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I allowed it to be my living hope that defines what it means to be saved? Or have I allowed it to be just a historical event that might or might not have happened? There's so many witnesses. This is important for us. And it allows us to move from having an anticipation maybe or a uh, an empty hope to a living hope that he's a promise-keeping God. Amen? I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer. We're going to invite the worship team to come forward, and we're going to close singing just an awesome song. Lord, we love you, and I thank you for this church family, and thank you for those who've joined us online. I thank you for the just how moving it was for me to to sit in that funeral yesterday and to um, as these truths were shared about a life well lived, that I just I needed to borrow a piece of paper from my wife to jot these notes down because they were so meaningful. But I thank you, Lord, that that when it comes to the so what of this message, the question for each and every one of us is: when we struggle, when we wrestle with the difficulties of life, will we trust you? And and I I want to encourage each and every person here that they would understand that you're worthy of our trust, we, that we, we, can, we can place all of those burdens and discouragements in our life in your hands. Um, also, for those who have yet to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe because they feel um, that they're not worthy of your grace, your grace is sufficient for them, your power is made perfect in our weakness. I pray that simple truth that you so loved your world that you gave your only begotten son that whomever believe in you will not perish but have everlasting life. I pray that that belief would be something that each one of us, line in the sand kind of moment in our life, we're saying, I, I believe you, Lord. I trust you. Even though I'm not worthy of it, I trust you. I trust that day um, that's on the calendar that I don't know when it's going to come, that I will graduate, Lord, that... I want to be absent from the body and present with you because of the work of the cross, not because of my goodness. So I pray that for each and every one of us. I thank you for your living word that promises us that it will not return void. And I thank you that we get to stand in the legacy of Christ followers like Alfreda Schaefer and Donald Schaefer and others that at, at one moment in their life, they decided that your grace was sufficient. We need you. We love you. We ask that you'd be glorified as we close in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?